Hey guys, and welcome to The One Up Project. We're simplifying all things finance and lifestyle in a relaxed environment. It's all just a bit of fun, so be sure to keep listening and let the content be a catalyst for your own self-improvement. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the One Up Project podcast. Back again with Jack. It's kind of strange because we've just recorded one episode and now I'm reintroducing him, but it'll be a whole new week when you're listening to this. So, hello Jack, how are you? I'm good. I'm still good. How are you though? <laughs> I'm really good. Glad to hear that you're still good after five minutes. Um, so, the previous one we just uh, recorded was sort of around investment property and moving on from your first home to purchase your second. But in this one, it's going to be a bit more loose with the structure and the format of it because we had a lot of you um, ask some questions for Jack and I know that you guys are really excited to have him back on because I got so many positive comments about the first episode so I'm glad that we can kind of just clear up a, a few random questions that don't necessarily all relate to one topic but just clarify a few things that people were curious about. Um, so the first thing that people were asking about was they had friends who are buying first homes with 5% deposits when we're all taught the golden rule is the 20% deposit. Um, so is it true or false that we need 20% and what's like the ideal amount to have? Yeah, it's an interesting one, the whole like what deposit um, you go for. And probably firstly just, you know, appreciate people actually getting in touch around these questions because there's some good questions um, from the last episode. But yeah, so with the deposit situation that you can do a 5% between 5% and 10% um, deposits on property when you're using the Kayinga or a, uh, or first home loan product where it's that government backed and and that's just based on the fact that the government um, basically underwrites um, or supports the the risky aspect of your lending so the banks can do it but it is a specific product with those income caps you know 85,000 for one person or 130 for a group you know two or more people mm. uh, with the property price caps in areas so it is a tough product to, to fit it is physically you know possible um, but doesn't make it achievable for every um, person. Look, it, and, uh, on the opposite side where you talk about that 20% being the golden rule, it, that's, I think, a really tough thing to get to. And I kind of look at it from a, the entry point of most people is really 10%. Is, is for most, when we generalise, because obviously, you know, for to fit most people's uh, situation is a 10%, but that if you've got the feeling that you're in a position to do something prior, nothing wrong with getting in touch. If you've gone over that and you're thinking 20%, but you've got something between 10 and 15, still we do a lot of business in that. Post-COVID, the banks got a lot tougher with how they deal with um, with low deposit lending. So um, yeah, it, it is important to, to get on the front foot and understand what that might look like for you in advance because it's not easy out there and it is an ever-changing beast. Mm. So ideally, we'd want to have 20%, but it is possible to have 5 or 10%. Yeah, yeah. Ideally, because you get the better rates, you get um, a lot easier criteria with the banks. But we know it's pretty tough to get to twenty percent as an individual or a couple. So um, I would say that yeah, it's it's very circumstantial, and that's probably the framework around it. What are the pros and the cons if we just break it down into yep. like bullet point form? of saving 20% as opposed to a lower amount. So we've got better rates and some a few other things. So what are those things, just to be clear? Yeah, so getting to 20%, um, look, it, it will take longer, which... But you're going to get to the better rate. So the difference is right now, for example, Westpac and, and ANZ, is, as we're talking about this, have come out with 2.29% for one year. So when you look at a mortgage calculator, it's going to be cheap as chips um, to do and it's going to be close to the cost of renting, depending on the price of the house. The, the rates when you go lower can be 
not too bad like they used to be, but it might be in and around that 3% when you've got less than 20% deposit. So that's one point. Uh, the criteria, so the banks are a lot easier to deal with in terms of how much expectations they have from your income versus debt uh, in order to get the funds. So the process can be easier and your borrowing capacity, so how much you can actually get out of the bank will increase um, because of that. Um, so that, that process is quite important. Now, getting that 20% might take you some time though. So uh, uh, getting, you know, looking at the con side of going to 20% is that, let's say it takes you another three, five years to get from 10% to uh, 20% is that what has the market done in that time of that? So has the market like, you know, increased 10% per annum and then all of a sudden, you know, you're not even able to buy at the price point that when your goal of going from 10% to 20% was, so you've missed out because of it and then you actually are still below 20% because the same price you had previously isn't accessible anymore. Mm. So sometimes being in the market early can be beneficial for that, yeah. Um, and the other things, yeah, so around that provability is the hardest part we see with the deposit situation um, and, and the ability to do that. So there's pros and cons to each of it, but I think just getting in the market can be quite key for people and just getting in it and staying in it for long. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. And the next question we had was, where is a good place to store my money while saving for a house? Now, I know we've both got some thoughts on this, but mm -hmm. I'll let you go um, first with what your thoughts on this question would be. Under the mattress. No. <laughs> um, look, with this one here, uh, look, by title mortgage advisor, so I, I keep it simple in that I, I look at it as the bank's the best place um, to do it, to, to keep it safe. But that's me, and you know, my mm -hmm. opinion can be completely different to someone else's. So I think... Being good with your savings is important and not lumping it into um, just, you know, your daily spending account where it's easily accessible. And if you've got a large sum, you probably don't won't see it, you won't understand how it fluctuates as much. So getting a separate house savings account is the first tip I'd have. And the second one might is, is actually around, you know, any time you maybe get to a milestone, whether that's 5,000 or 10,000 savings, is to look at what the term deposit uh, rates you might have is and see if you can get a little bit more interest, but it also secures it for a set period of time so you're even less tempted to touch it. Mm. So those are some ways. And then the other one would just be around the KiwiSaver, which I know you're a big advocate about getting right. Um, but for me, it would just be around you know making sure that you understand what fund you're at, you get some support or guidance or education around the best fund for you as so the money's working for you while it sits there. Yeah, definitely. KiwiSaver is such a key one to get sorted and it's not as hard as you think. I think the most important um, thing to get right if you don't, if you can't, you don't know what your contribution rate is or who your provider is, it's the fund type. It's mm -hmm. are you in a growth, balanced, conservative, what is it and does it align with your goals? Because if you think about it, a growth generally, and this isn't specific informational recommendations, this is just what I've sort of le learned throughout the past few years, Generally, if you're intending on using your KiwiSaver within the next five years, you're not really going to want to be in a growth fund because the potential is that if we go through something like a pandemic or something happens that you weren't expecting, the value of that money will decrease and suddenly you're left with, I don't know, 20% below what you had initially and that's going to put a real dent in the deposit that you thought you were going to have. So nailing your KiwiSaver is so key and speaking to your provider is really helpful and something that you should feel like you can um, do and if you don't know who your provider is that's a red flag straight away find out who they are if you're in a default scheme it's probably with your bank so I would just check in with your bank first um, or look on your my IR account yep. on IRD that's where it'll state who it's with as well yep. 
Um, and that's really important to speak to them because they will be able to guide you through that process as well. So KiwiSaver is absolutely key. And I think this is a really interesting question because so many people would have a different opinion on where to put your mm -hmm. money. I would have said... I don't know, personal opinion, if you had have asked me a year ago, I would have said the bank's the best place. And I mm -hmm. think to term deposits is a really good idea. And that's kind of leaning into that investing kind of style of saving yeah. as well. Um, but now with interest rates taking a deep dive, so great for lending and for borrowing money, but mm -hmm. not so good for saving. And mm -hmm. so if you're wanting to get return on that, on those savings, um, and because you won't be using it in, a short, in the short term um, necessarily, then maybe putting it in the bank isn't going to be the most beneficial option for you. So we're coming up with an episode on this soon, actually, because this is a topic I'm really interested in knowing about. Um, I had a lump sum of money that is now in the share market, and I didn't initially know what to do with it, and that was my choice to do that. But there's also so many other options that you can... Um, that you can take with a lump sum of money like a deposit and I think that sometimes having it sit in the bank might not necessarily be the best place to have it work for you depending on the times that you have whether it's one year or ten years until you're going to be using it and so mm -hmm. this goes for house deposits but also goes for other types of lump sums as well so that's sort of my thoughts on it and we will be coming out with an episode on this soon so keep an eye out for that hopefully that sort of semi answers that question um, so moving on to life insurance someone asked is life insurance a must when buying a first home what insurance do we need like what role does it play in buying a property i'm quite interested to know this too yeah it's a really good question look life insurance is definitely an important aspect of um you know having assets and, and everything like that it's not needed it's it's not a requirement it's 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 not what used to happen though is before the royal commission you know where everything went you know pretty badly with the banking environment in australia because we were own a lot of the ownerships of banks in new zealand were australian there was like this influence of like if you do a mortgage with this bank you also needed to take out these products which sometimes were life insurance that's not ethical forcing someone into any product especially that sort of product class mm. Where it comes into it is down to the fact where if that's a requirement or something that you need personally. So a good insurance advisor is really key to understanding what that might be. Um, but there is no actual, you can't buy a house without life insurance. The only insurance you need to settle on a property is house insurance that the house is actually insured. Because at the end of the day, the bank's got a, you know, multiple hundred thousand dollar interest in a property. If it burns down, you know, they're... they're their money's gone sort of thing if you haven't insured it. So having insurance is really important. And not only just getting insurance, it's actually the right type of insurance because with a lot of properties in New Zealand, we get see people doing a bit of um, you know, DIY uh, without the council's permission. Mm -hmm. And it means that there's um, unconsented works done. So when you get insurance on a property which has had some stuff, you have to disclose that to that insurer. And some insurers won't cover that, which means that the bank won't accept that insurance because it's not fully insured. So having a good insurance advisor that knows which place to go for the right reason, same as me with the mortgages, is really key, uh, which you know has been the difference between some people being able to buy properties or not. But that's the only requirement. You ha and then what happens is that on the insurance policy, the bank that you're with is noted as an interested party, and then you show it to the bank before you settle to say, yep, we're all safe uh, to go. So yeah, that's um, it's a big part, especially... In the last year, I kind of call 2020 the year of unconsented work. It came in a lot, um, which meant that our insurance advisors were really key for us getting deals done because that they won't happen without it. Mm. Okay, cool. So house insurance is the one that you need. Otherwise, all else is either personal preference or not necessary. Agreed. 
Okay, cool. And so buying with friends, this is such an interesting mm-hmm. one because not all of us can go the whole way and have, make a deposit up on our own. Yep. So what are some hacks to make it work? And someone said, why are banks so scared of friendships? Which I just think That's is a funny, quite funny. That is very funny. Look, I love um, co-ownership. It's mm. something that I'd say I do a lot of. Um, and I think because people talk that something I get quite a lot of referrals with. And it's the reason is, is that the banks do not like it. And there are probably three banks that I would say that are, are decent at doing it out of the you know six or seven. Um, and what happens is, is that the banks that aren't interested in doing it, what they'll do is that, let's say that you and your best mate want to buy a property together and you're like, okay, I can't do it enough by myself. So we're going to bring our resources together to do it together. Well, in your eyes, you're doing it the whole maybe 50-50 or whatever. But when some of the banks assess you, they'll go, okay, can um, you know Sarah do it by herself and can Jack do it by himself, even though the whole point is for you to do it together because you're not a joint right. financial position, which defeats the whole purpose. Yeah. So you need to be able to choose a lender. And to be fair, it's more one bank really specialises it and then there's a couple of other options who do it all right, but the others suck at it, to be honest. So, so picking the right lender and knowing the right pathway is really important to getting that done um, I why are the banks scared of it? I don't know because at the end of the day, um, you know, the, it, it makes no sense when you've got you know fifty. They, basically, the way I was taught at the bank I was at is that oh, what happens if one party runs away? Well, you probably sell the house, wouldn't you? You know, like it's it's mm. it's an interesting one. Um, so at the end of the day, it's the hacks to make it work though. So mortgage advisor who knows what they're doing, a good solicitor who can draw up a really good agreement because while everything smiles and you know rainbows prior. It, it can go it can turn bad and I've seen it turn bad but people with the best agreements in place you know what happens if this person wants to exit what happens if neither one one wants to exit the other doesn't having all these rules in place quickly is uh, up front is important yeah and a good solicitor with experience and that is the right option not just the cheapest solicitor you can find right. uh, to do that up front um, and then yeah you might have it in a trust or you might have it in an ownership structure which is also beneficial. Um, yeah, it's. Um, I mean, there's companies now that are starting to introduce people to other people, a bit, a bit, a bit of Tinder matchmaking sort of thing to help <laughs> people because it's not easy, and especially in you know the metropolitan areas to buy by yourself. So mm. combining resources is a really good way. Right. Okay. So people like matching up that don't even know each other to buy. One company was doing it for a bit. It was quite cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that is quite cool. Yeah. Okay. And so, can you go in with? five plus friends for example or is it better to have less people because I feel like I've heard a few stories of like seven people going in on a house together are there complications how does that work that's look five plus is a lot of people within a house and I yeah I I think it gets pretty messy in that it's not you probably could do it in theory but if that's the right thing for you I don't know I mean look the big thing is it probably came about around the whole millennials wanted to keep living their life after buying a property and didn't want to go on noodles which is absolutely fine so they were trying to do it in a minimalistic way right mm. the thing with that is is that if you do it with five plus people obviously any um, returns on your investment being the property and the capital gains are split five ways so the growth isn't quite there but if you're just looking to have a house and to pay off your own mortgage then in theory you could I'm not sure exactly if the bank's going to really be keen on more than I think four people is the limits that I've seen um but you never say never right so it's an it would be an interesting one to see how that turned out yeah mm, that'd be super interesting have yeah. you ever dealt with that before like five people nah four four was four. the limit um I've seen people try and do community stuff where they've almost tried to buy like a big plot of land altogether and almost um and it gets quite messy and complex mm. lending it's almost not standard residential when there's that many 
um, fingers in the pie, I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay, cool. And when should a lawyer become involved in the home pr- buying process? So when and why would we need them? Yeah, look, um, different for different people. Um, again, when you've got that co-ownership up front is definitely important. When it's um, maybe a couple that's maybe a newer couple or if there's couples where, you know, different people are bringing different uh, items, maybe one person's got gift from family and they, the family wants to protect it, you might have some more agreements up front. Um, otherwise, it's a case of most people usually when the, they're starting to look for properties will engage with a lawyer so that, um, you know, the important part being when you find a property you like, getting those documents to a solicitor for them to do help you with your due diligence. You know, is there anything in the, in the land and information report um, that's, you know, raises any flags is there anything in the contract you need to be wary of actually just signing the contract safely and having the right clauses to protect you um, is, is really important especially for a first-time buyer where there's no experience or you might have parents who have got experience and tell you oh, do this or this and this but I think that kind of Kiwi attitude of she'll be right isn't good enough for property in my in my opinion I'm always going to be a bit more conservative with my first-time buyers is to go go see a solicitor, they'll talk you through this, this and this, these are the questions you need to ask of them. And it just means everyone's safe and there's no issues or worries. Mm. Nothing worse than if you sign a contract and you can't exit it because you didn't have the right stuff on it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those are probably the different stages for different groups of people, but um, they are very key to getting it done. Because um, then once the property is accepted, um, you know, and you've done all the conditions on your mortgage um, approval, then the contracts go to your solicitor for signing prior to settlement. It's really important that you know you're going through those with them and you really understand what you're signing um, when you sign your life away for a th- usually a thirty year loan, right? Yeah, you're all good people exactly. around you. So it's not a case of just ticking the boxes and winging things. I see a lot of people probably trying to find the cheapest solicitor just to get the job done, but they're worth their weight uh, in gold. You pay for what you get sort Mm. of thing, same as accountants. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's really good to know. And I think it's important to reiterate that um, we discussed this also in the first episode you came on, but you can seek out a mortgage advisor pretty much as early as you want really in the process of buying your first home, Um, which I think is good to know because so many people – would wait until maybe they have the deposit Mm -hmm. and then they seek someone out, but you can actually seek, for example, Jack out before that um, time as well. Yeah, I think it's really important to do that. I mean, look, I would never um, begrudge someone for coming, even if they're going to be, you know, back in two years, you know, I'm going to be doing this until my hair's fully grey and um, I'm, you know, retiring sort of thing. So for me, it's a long game. So I've got, you know, just yesterday I interviewed someone who I talked to 18 months, two years ago, and we started planning on how they can get there. And they've gone and done the things we set out as objectives, which means that when we're going to do this application, it's going to be a lot more achievable than if, you know, I just met them and, you know, they hadn't been Mm. disciplined or whatever it is. So I think going on a journey with someone's where I get that biggest kind of satisfaction because we're accomplishing things we set out together. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no harm in getting in touch early, yeah. Yeah, awesome. That's so good to know. Cool. Well, that's all the questions we have t- for now, but I'm sure you'll be back on another episode <laughs> soon enough. Jack. Those are really good. I actually really enjoyed it. Um, thank you very much, Sarah. Yeah, no worries at all. Thank you. Disclaimer time. So... The One Up Project is an educational platform providing information that is general in nature and has no intention of being financial advice. There may be opinions or an individual's experience within this resource that should not be considered as recommendations or personal advice. Everyone's financial situation is so different and you must use the information provided within the podcast at your own risk. 
Please complete your own due diligence before making any financial decisions based on the information within this resource. I'm not a qualified, registered or authorized financial advisor and if you require legal, financial or other expert advice, you should seek assistance from a professional advisor. Thanks guys. Alright guys, thank you so much for listening. I really hope you were able to take something valuable away. Um, Be sure to subscribe and keep up with the socials for further episodes at The One Up Project and I'll catch you on the next one.